Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy of Is podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I'm excited to talk with the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Kevin Hassett. Now, before we get into the show, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first, if you are living in the Boston or New York City areas, I am coming to your towns with my good friend, Stephanie Posevic. We are going to be putting on two data-designed workshops uh, in December. Uh, we will be in Boston on Wednesday, December 5th. We will be in New York on Wednesday, December 6th. If you are interested in attending this full-day workshop, please take a look uh, at the registration page. Uh, we have an early bird discount uh, that expires at the end of September, but we're also offering discounts if you're a student, if you work at a nonprofit, um, if you have a group that you want to send, um, please do so. Um, I teach data visualization core principles and practices in the morning, and then Stephanie talks about design, and you get to do some hands-on work um, in the afternoon. So I hope you'll be able to make it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to let you know about is the Information Plus Conference that's taking place in Potsdam, Germany, uh, that's coming up uh, in the middle of October. I will be there. I hope you will be there. It looks like a really fun uh, time, so I hope you will be able to join me. Um, and the third thing I wanted to make sure I highlighted was that if you are in D.C., the um, Association of a Public Policy and Management Conference is taking place in November here in D.C. Uh, the conference is officially uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, November 8, 9, and 10. Um, I, along with members of the Urban Institute's communications team, uh, will be hosting a research to policy boot camp on November 7th. It's the official pre-conference workshop um, that we will be talking about data visualization. We'll be talking about how to write a blog, how to do social media, how to uh, put together an entire uh, comprehensive communications plan for your research and for your analysis. So if you're interested in attending that, um, I think you can sign up just for the pre-conference workshop. It's just going to be a five-hour session uh, in the afternoon on, on November 7th. Um, and then you could, of course, uh, if you're interested, sign up for the, uh, for the entire conference. It's a really great conference that takes place uh, every other year here in D.C. and then around the country in the in the other years. So anyway, um, we're going to turn over to this week's interview uh, I conducted with Kevin Hassett over at the old executive office building. Uh, Kevin is the chair of the Ch uh, Council of Economic Advisors. So I hope you will enjoy this week's episode of the Policy of This podcast. So I'm here with Kevin Hassett. Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Kevin, thanks for coming on the oh, show. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, great to talk with you. Uh, I think I'd like to start because I'm not sure a lot of my listeners know much about the CEA. So it would be great maybe if you could talk a little bit about yourself and mm -hmm. where you've been and how you got here and then a little bit about the role of the CEA in the administration. Sure. Well, the Council of Economic Advisors was founded in 1946 in the Employment Act in 1946, and the basic idea was to hardwire an economics faculty into the White House. And so ever since 46, there have been, you know, 29 chairmen, 29 people in my job, and they've built, you know, top flight economics faculty to come and advise the president on economic matters. And uh, the thing, one of the things that's different about the CEA uh, is that most people come here for a year or two. They tend to be like, professors from some university who take a year's leave and then come and then go back. And so it doesn't really have a large permanent staff like a lot of other government agencies. And I think that's one of the things that's a real asset for it because it helps sort of preserve its neutrality and professionalism. Mm -hmm. 
So where does the CEA fit in the larger sort of ecosystem of the administration's economic staff? Well, I think that uh, there's within the White House the National Economic Council, which is uh, headed by, uh, chaired by Larry Kudlow, uh, and the CEA, and then there's this other thing called the Office of Management and Budget, and those are really the three main economic arms within the White House. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is the director of the OMB, and you could think of him as being in charge of like all things spending. Um, and uh, Larry Kudlow uh, coordinates between the different White House segments and also the cabinet offices when there's an issue like, what do we do about ethanol? What do we do about taxes? Uh, that will require you know expertise from many different agencies and meetings where we talk about what we think we ought to do and so on. And, and the National Economic Council sort of coordinates those meetings. The CEA's job is to just like analyze options and quantify what might happen if we do this or that. Right. So you mentioned how the goal of the CEA, the role of the CEA is to be this neutral party. How do you, both as chair, but sort of generally, how do you manage the neutrality when you're working for the White House in different administrations? How do you manage that objectivity and neutrality? <clears throat> well, the, the job is to just like uh, report what the modeling and the data say. And, um, you know, politicians might look at all of the uh, output that you produce and decide that they really want to talk about, you know, output three, output five, and output seven, yeah. but not talk about two, four, and six. Right. Uh, and that's their prerogative. And, and so I think that the CEA is most effective when it helps inform solid decisions that are backed by sound economics. And then, you know, the, the politicians are thrilled to report about your analysis because it supports their decision. Right. Now, we're in a, seem to be in an era where facts, truth, research in general seems to be kind of under attack from, from different sides. So how do you think about that when you are communicating the work that you guys are doing? I think that uh, being as transparent as possible, uh, showing uh, you know how your analysis is done. If you look at the economic report of the president, which we helped produce, uh, you know, right we had to produce a forecast for uh, how the economy is going to do. And we described, you know, with great precision, the models that we used and the rationale um, that we had for picking the number that we did. And so it'd be easy to replicate what we did for mm -hmm. someone. And I think that that's a very important part of being convincing. It's like, so you don't just say, hey, I got this really cool black box. Trust me, it's a great black box. And it says we're going to grow 5% this year. Uh, that shouldn't convince anybody. Uh, but if you say, hey, you know, here's the standard uh, in the literature model, and it says we ought to do this, but uh, it doesn't account for like the effects of tax reform. And in that literature, it says you ought to get half a percent growth out of tax mm -hmm. reform. So combining the two, here's our growth estimate. Then, then it's something that should be convincing because it's replicable and uh, based in science. Right. We've, we've seen, I think, in economics, maybe not especially economics, but certainly in economics, the attack on these assumptions that we have to make when we're, we're making these models. So how do you balance or how do you make the argument that your assumptions are better or objective relative to other people's assumptions? I mean, you're coming, you're coming from the administration, you know, from the, from the campus here. So how do, you, how do you make that case, I guess, to the, the public and the press sort of at large? Well, you document it with like, so, so it shouldn't be much about assumptions. It should be about evidence. And so, 
Uh, as an example, during the tax debate, uh, we put out a very detailed paper saying, you know, here's what's going to happen to the economy that cited zillions of papers that looked at what happens if you move this or that. And um, some of uh, the, our opponents, uh, our political opponents, so the White House's political opponents, uh, you know, basically made assertions about what the literature says that, that are inconsistent with what the literature says. Uh, and that was sort of, I think, easy for people to see. Uh, by just like inspecting the evidence that people point to. Mm -hmm. I um, appeared uh, at the American Economic Association meetings and made a presentation uh, that was, again, festooned with academic citations. Uh, and the people uh, who sort of made the other side, people uh, like Osticlesby and Jason Furman, um, I don't think they made a very strong case uh, in part because they didn't have a lot of evidence to cite because I think the literature overwhelmingly says that if you pass a tax bill like we had last year that you'd get a capital spending boom. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sure enough, here we are half a year later and capital spending is going up by just about what the model said. Uh, and so, anyway, th but I think that, the, you know, that provides some vindication for the approach, which is read the literature, see what the literature says, you know, base your argument on that and not on what's politically convenient. Right. So you have this AA presentation in front of economists, but you're mm -hmm. also talking to the president, you're talking to members mm -hmm. of Congress. So how do you balance this trying to be an objective economist rooted in models and details and appendices with trying to communicate with people who kind of maybe they just want the answer or they want the, the simple statistic that they can use? Yeah, I'd say that if you go back, I... I uh you know, I'm on television uh, right. talking about economics uh, uh, quite a bit. And a couple times in the last week or two, the uh, people interviewing me said, boy, now we're really boring the audience. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, there are times where you're right, people want to just sort of cut to the chase. Mm -hmm. but, but my view is that as an economist, my job is not to help somebody's ratings, but rather to help people who want to understand where it comes from, understand that, and, and maybe sometimes... I provide too much information, <laughs> but I think it's better to err on that side. Right. So when you're talking to just say members of Congress, how do you make the case, for example, let's go back to the tax center. How do you, sure. how do you make the case without bringing up the hundreds of citations that this Sure. Well, well, one thing that, that we do, uh, and, and you've helped us with this at times, is uh, you know, data visualization uh, that we have. Uh, charts that, you know, I did the uh, press conference uh, with Sarah Sanders a while ago where we presented a bunch of charts about how the economy's doing after the tax cut. And I think that the charts are, uh, I don't know if the word's convincing, but, right. but they're, they're, they stimulate a lot of thought right. that there's something going on that's uh, interesting and maybe consistent with economic theory. Right. And so, so, but those same slides I also went to the Senate and presented those mm -hmm. slides to, uh, you know, the Senate steering committee. And, and so I think that slides, uh, well-chosen slides can be helpful, but often just talking things through is, is useful as well. Mm -hmm. So what other big communication challenges do you think the CEA has? You know, I, th I think that the, it's not really a communications challenge, but it is, uh, Maybe, maybe it's like the opposite of a communications uh, uh, challenge, but, but I'll, I'll describe it as being something that um, is important to me and will be important to future CEA chairs. And that is that, you know, suppose that you, you know, have five ideas about how we might make the economy better. And then you ask me to analyze them. And then I analyze them and uh, 
you know, one of them, uh, according to our models, would like destroy the economy, right? right. right. So, uh, well, then, um, if somebody leaks our analysis and uh, then like tries to plant a story about what a kook uh, Schwabish is, uh, then you won't want to ask us the next time. Yeah. Right. The, the, so, so that you know, most of the product that we produce is confidential. Uh, protected by executive privilege. And the reason is that since it's for deliberation, then we just tell the truth. We don't pull punches. And, and so uh, people who want to not have analysis around will tend to sort of want to leak it so that people become reluctant to ask the CEA what to do. And so, and so, so that's not really a communications problem, right? It's a, it's like yeah. a protection, protection from unintended communications. Right. Right. But I would say protection from unintended communications is a is a key challenge in every in every way. Else. Right. So, do you have an, an example that maybe it's generic or maybe something you've actually done publicly, but something that you've put out where members of the administration have said, "Well, you know, we don't believe you, or, or we we're going to go ahead anyways." And we've had, and you had, I'm sure you've had those discussions. Yeah, I can't talk about right. our discussions, but but there have been numerous times since I've been here, you know, and I can't confirm or deny their accuracy, where there have been big news stories about what CEA may or may, or may not have said. Right. And, and, and so it's clear that in this political uh, arena that, you know, control of the release of information is something right. that the CEA chair needs to pay attention to. So as a as the head, as a manager of a team, CEA is about 30, 35? Maybe up to 50. 50, so 50 people. Mm -hmm. So as the, the manager of a team of 50 people working in a political climate, who most of the people here are economists, a lot of them. Not that. very political. Yeah. Right. They're not very political. So mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you manage that? How do you direct that? Um, that, that I, I think that basically our team is filled with people who love economics and who especially love their field in economics, which is why they chose to be a labor economist, a macroeconomist, or a regulatory economist, trade economist, whatever. And so uh, mostly uh, the requests for CEA input uh, you know, are, are easy to allocate to someone who has a specific expertise in that area. And when they get the assignment, they're really thrilled to basically produce a memo that says, hey, if we do this or that, Here's what happens because that's you know in the first place why they studied that thing is that they want to try to make the world a better place and right. so it's not a very uh, difficult management problem at all. Now, do you ever have to pull them back from writing like academics to writing a memo that? Yeah, we, we will depending on who the audience is. Right. That sometimes the, the my chief of staff uh, DJ Norquist is a brilliant communicator and she'll very often sort of try to make it easier for people to understand. Uh, another thing that we'll have to pull back. Uh, sometimes, given that it's you know economists, uh, that anyone uh, who's listening who's ever like presented at a seminar understands that economists tend to be pretty frank, right. right? Like, so if somebody thinks that your model has a problem, then they might say, "Well, you know, that assumption is the stupidest thing I ever saw," or whatever it is, and yeah. and, and it's pretty much how we interact with each yeah. other because and it's pretty efficient too, right? If you're at a seminar, then uh, prefacing every criticism with 10, you know, moments of praise would just waste everybody's time. You should just get right to the criticism. Well, one of the issues is that, that, you know, everything that goes through the White House goes to, you know, all the different agencies for comment. And then if it's, you know, this area or that area, we might give it to an economist to comment on what some other part of the White House is doing. Yeah. And, and very often um, we have to sort of go in and make it less snarky. 
less mean because economists <laughs> tend to be that way to each other, but we really, you know, can't have that be like our face, you know, our face to the rest right. of the team here. Yeah. So how have, how have you had to change your approach to to talking about economics? You, you mentioned going on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been doing this a, a long time. You've been out there writing for the Wall Street Journal and for sure. organizations. Have you had to change the way you present in different places? No, I think I'm pretty much doing it the way I've always done it. (laughs) I think that it's it's the difference between having been a think tanker at the American Enterprise Institute and um, having, if I had been, you know, earlier I was a professor at Columbia. If I'd spent all my time at Columbia, then I probably would have had a lot less experience doing TV and communicating with non-economists. But, but, you know, the think tank uh, world is one where you have to kind of do both. And, And so, in fact... If you're at Brookings or AEI, one way to think about the job and how it would differ from being an, at an academic department is that, that, you know, at Columbia, you're teaching students in a class, uh, but at Brookings, you're, you know, basically teaching the public. Right. Right. And, and, and so, therefore, the skills of a, a Brookings scholar are a little bit different. But, yeah, I mean, they're similar. You're, you're trying to help people understand what it is economists think about things. But, but the audience is a little bit different. You, you, you know, can't use equations quite so much right. when you're on TV and such. So is your development in that area, was that just experience? Or did you, you know, how did, how did you develop the skills that made you an effective communicator? Well, I don't know if I'm an effective communicator, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I just started working at AEI. And then at some point, somebody you know, asked me to come on TV and talk about whatever it was. And then after doing that, some other guy, some other time asked me. And, and so over time, you know, I'm now an old man. So I've done this many, many times. <laughs> um, so I want to turn back to the policy side. So what, looking forward, uh, at least the next few months until the November elections, what do you think are the big policy challenges or things that you, you and the CEO will be working on? I think that the biggest thing that we're working out at the CEA right now is that, as you know, uh, that we have to produce the uh, annual report of the Council of Economic Advisors and the Economic Report of the President, and uh, you, we have to, you know, pretty much nail that shut in December, mm-hmm. and it's, what, about a 500-page book, okay. and, and so we have to get that baby going. Can you and, talk a little bit about that? I mean, I don't think it's like a, I don't think most people sit down and read. Uh you know, I, it's interesting how many people do read it, but I think that, that it's uh, a document that we're required by law to produce according to the 46 Employment Act that uh, establishes both the sort of state of the economy, documents it, but also uh, looks out at what's right and what's wrong in the economy and proposes policies to fix the things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in last year's uh, economic report of the president, we had a... Uh, chapter on infrastructure, because infrastructure in America is really in deep trouble, and you know, we need to do it better. And uh, there are all sorts of problems in infrastructure, for example, that it's financed a lot with a gasoline tax, uh, but um, you know, fuel economies improve so much, and we're even switching to electric cars. You know, Imagine if everybody's driving around an electric car, then how is the gasoline tax going to fund the highways mm-hmm. at that point, right? And so issues like that we addressed. Uh, on infrastructure, we had a chapter on cybersecurity where we talked about what's going on in cybersecurity, what a significant negative effect uh, uh, cybercrime is having on the economy. Some, some of the first estimates, really, that have been put out by government. 
government agency, uh, that topic came out of the economic report. And so we have to sort of both look at what's going on now and think ahead to the problems that future policymakers are going to have to think about. And so anyway, so, so it's a heavy responsibility, a weighty responsibility. These documents live forever and often they're very influential. Uh, and, uh, you know, our job is to, to you know, go from zero to one between now and December, and it's, it's a really big job for the CEA staff. Do you get to choose those chapters, so cybersecurity infrastructure? So yeah. you We collectively as a staff will have meetings and say, here's what we think we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, after we do that, then we'll send it around to the other corners of the White House and say, here's what we think we ought to do. You know, is there something you'd like us to look at that we didn't list here? Or, you know, is there some reason why you think that chapter three, you know, might be you know, a bad thing to go into this year because of whatever. And and so, but, but as a practical matter, I think that at least for the first one, pretty much our outline was what, what we pursued. Great. Um, Anything else I missed that we should, that we should cover about how the CEA works? No, I think that I, you know, the one thing that's a little bit different, uh, for the CEA now, as opposed to the past, is that we actually tweet. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And um, so when we see like a chart that we think is really interesting uh, to people who are following the economy, then we'll throw it out there on Twitter. Right. Uh, and so, so there is a little bit of a revolution going on. Although we're probably like fifty years behind the times, <laughs> but compared to the nineteen forty six CEA, yeah. uh, where the communications were really just the economic report of the president and then memos to the president and so on, that we are a little bit more participating in the twenty first century yeah. in terms of communication. Briefly, how does that work? How do, how do you and the staff think about using Twitter versus waiting for the big ERP report or you know a 30-page PDF report? How, how does that strategy work? I think the Twitter stuff tends to be about the news of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, you know today, there were three data releases that were all pretty good, uh, pretty interesting, uh, reflect uh, that the economy's got a lot of positive momentum. And uh, at the morning meeting, I said to the staffers who follow those data, hey, why don't you uh, look at what came out today and propose some tweets that we might make about those. And, uh, you know, I haven't received the proposed tweets yet, <laughs> but we'll look at them and then, and then as a team decide whether right. they're uh, high value enough to merit tweeting. Right. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor Great. to be here. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Well, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. So uh, until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.